This is the Drunken Comedian Podcast with your host, Matt Hoss. Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Drunken Comedian Podcast. Yeah, and I'm your host, Matthew Hoss, and I am very excited that you've joined me today. I'm, I'm very, very thankful and grateful for you to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. So, uh, you're probably wondering, what, what exactly is this new fangled podcast that I'm hearing right today? Um, that's assuming you haven't uh, heard the pilot episode, or uh, you don't know what the podcast's about, and you just kind of accidentally clicked on it by accident. What this show is all about, this podcast, it's all about uh, interviewing comedians, uh, having a bit of a chat with them over a couple of drinks, and usually I would be hungover doing the edit, just to make you guys laugh a little bit more at that. Uh, today I'm relatively quite fresh, um, in all fairness, I did do a the edit of this podcast uh, in January, and I recorded it in December. So I'm feeling fresh. However, just to get that sense of authenticity, I did go out the night previous, and uh, I had a couple of drinks. Just, just you know, so the, the podcast is authentic, <laughs> all the same. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it's, a bit, it's half of an interview, half of a bit of a chat uh, over a couple of drinks. That's what the podcast is all about. Uh, some episodes we get quite drunk, uh, and nonsense happens, and other ones get a little bit more serious. Uh, uh, it's, it's just about whatever comes up. It's, it's about having a bit of a laugh. Uh, it's also just about just uh, finding what's happening in the comedy world as well. And you'd be delighted to find out that the first ever episode, and this one I'm very proud to have as our first ever guest, the amazing Stuart Goldsmith, everyone. And in case you don't know who Stuart Goldsmith is, well, he's actually a very, very, very big uh, comedy player because he runs the, the Comedian's Comedian podcast. And if you haven't heard that, get out. Get out of this podcast right now. Just leave, okay? I don't want you here. Uh, no, uh, um, that being said, if you haven't heard what the Comedian's Comedian podcast is, it's, um, it's regarded as uh, one of the biggest analytical podcasts uh, for comedy and... Uh, Basically, Stuart interviews comedians and really gets to the mind of the comedian and he really kind of gets these great questions out of them as well. Uh, it's it's quite famous within the comedy community. Uh, so it's a, it's a really big delight to have Stuart here. And not only does he have the podcast, but he's also uh, he's a touring comedian as well. And he's actually on tour later this year, but I'll get back to that afterwards. Uh, but yeah, he, he does Edinburgh most years. Uh, Edinburgh shows we mention... His, his 2014 shows was Extra Life, which I get wrong in the interview. There's An Hour, his 2015 show, which he toured in 2016. And uh, his Edinburgh Fringe show in 2016 was called Compared to What? And that's going out on tour later on. So you have all that to listen for. Uh, and it's uh, I, I think it's a really good interview. Uh, uh, well, sorry. it's I find it a really interesting one. Uh, I, I sound a bit like I hate listening to my own voice. Why do I sound like that? So I hate listening to myself. However, Stuart is very broadcastable, I would say. But I, <laughs> I'm, I'm just a, a slivering mess. Uh, and that's another thing you have to note with this podcast in particular, uh, in this episode, is that uh, it's got a lot of quite a noise uh, in the background because we we recorded it in a uh, London bar. Uh, in all fairness, we had to find somewhere quite quiet on a very busy Christmas night. 
And uh, so it, there is a lot of noise in the background. And I know there's a couple of audiophiles out there who probably won't be that happy about that. But uh, if you just kind of uh, pretend you're going out for, you know, uh, a, a night out with the lads or ladettes, it's 21st century. Uh, <laughs> I don't mean that, by the way, please. If you just kind of pretend it's like a, you're on a night out with me and Stuart and get into the nice atmosphere of it. Uh, I've tried to take out as much as possible, but uh, some bits are a little bit harder than others. Uh, and at the very start, there's a bit with a, a coffee frother as well, which I've left in because there's a nice little uh, bit about that. But yeah, so there will be some noises, but hopefully uh, you'll still be able to listen to it perfectly normal. In the future, it should be a lot better. Um, but for this one, I think you'll very much enjoy our first ever Drunken Comedian podcast with the fantastic Mr. Stewart. Goldsmith. Drew Goldsmith, hello. hello there. How are you? Um, yeah, I'm really well. I'm really well. I'm very excited. Uh, I don't know when this will be released, but in real life, it is nearly Christmas, and uh, I have got one gig left before I'm on Christmas lockdown. I get to spend my first Christmas with my baby. That's exciting. So, I can't wait, man. Yeah, yeah great. Uh, well, I was going to jump into this later on, but uh, how, how have you been finding doing stand-up alongside um, like baby-related duties and raising well, a family? The the duties involved... We'll wait for a second. <laughs> there might be a pressurised steam noise in a second yeah, as yeah. well. Let's I, just... I'm a trained barista, so I know... Are you really? Yes. You describe to me then, Matt, what is a flat wine? Yes. Right. <laughs> Cause, uh, cause, like, um, I remember seeing um, an hour, uh, and uh, the best part was like... Well, not the best part. The thing that, was, that really stuck on me afterwards yeah. was the flat white part. And when I, uh, I became a barista in September, like, uh, fully trained, and uh, I was like, that's what a flat white, uh, flat white is. And yes. it's, so it's, what it is, it's a latte, but shorter. So it's a yes. strong, um, milky coffee. Yes, and it's, uh, the milk is velvety microfoam, which is why they bang the thing yeah. like that to take the froth out of it. Yes. Because it's foam, but not froth. Yeah. So what happens? Yeah. So when you see people banging it, uh, it's to yeah, get rid of all the air. Uh, yeah. But they, they don't do it for cappuccinos because they want the froth. Yes. And I tell you what, the um, the uh, that routine originated from something that doesn't appear in the routines. I can make it funny, mm-hmm. which is that um, I now when I go into places when I get a coffee. Uh, or less so now because more play you get a sense of whether they know what a flat white is what I will do as a as a little knife hack is I will say to the I'm not even going to say barista normally I mean the person making a coffee yeah. if they're advertising a flat white I'll pretend I don't know what one is mm-hmm. and I'll go what oh, flat white what's that and then when they explain to me what it is I'll decide whether or not to have one uh, and if they say oh it's basically a latte I'll go I'm fine thanks yeah. <laughs> I'll, have, I'll have a latte I'd rather not have the disappointment yeah. <laughs> um, I work I say I work in um, Yorkshire at the moment and it's, it's Marks and Spencer's Cafe and uh, we always all people come in it's quite an old town that I work in and, but uh, they come in and they they're really confused about all the different coffees, like Americano. They, they just want to filter coffee, but they don't know what to order. So yeah. they're just like, um, a flat white? And then they, they get annoyed when you uh, you give it to them. Because uh, they think it's just a white coffee. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you have I to feel school you, them. I feel, I feel your pain, yeah. you have to school them. Yeah, it's, uh, I, um, yeah. Uh, the other day, um, the most annoying customer came in, and uh, essentially she was like, uh, um, 
Yeah, she was like, she pretended to be a coffee expert, and I was like, okay, let's see how far. And she goes, oh, can I have a, a mocha, please? Is that, is that a mocha? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I gave her the mocha, and she's like, excuse me, this has got chocolate in it. I was like, that's what a mocha is. And she goes, no, no, I usually have it without chocolate. Like, <laughs> that's a latte. Yeah. Oh, bless. So, but you've got to, I mean, you know, you need to. Uh, decide how much of a dick you're going to be <laughs> yes <laughs> and I often I like long term my plan is not to be a dick but individually in the moment I'm like I'm mm. going to be a dick now and I don't even feel like I've made that decision I, I have like a daily quota of how much of a dick I'm being if you know what I mean oh, okay. so, uh, so well, not I'm usually really nice but uh, uh, for example there's a guy that came in the other day uh, and um, oh, the price of the thing was uh, £2.30 and he made a Racist joke going, oh, 2 30. Yeah, that's a Chinese dentist. And yeah, like, mm, I'm gonna just spend all my dick quotes on you. And I just, I just kind of passively aggressive, just like, just didn't. It's like, there's a chainsaw, and then went to the next customer. Oh, yeah. cold hearted killer. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Because I mean, there's two things that throws up one is that that's not like. There's, there's kind of racism and then there's like an old joke from a time when that wasn't all that bad to say yeah, I mean it was yeah. as bad there's, there's the sense that that is um, that's not I mean it is racist but it's kind of it's not necessarily a hatred in your heart type racism mm, no. and then there's also the issue that by like you didn't challenge him on it so yeah. actually just freezing someone out who benefits from that no yeah, lesson yeah, you know it's not good enough to be I know um, I know you know non-racist you have to be anti-racist yeah well <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah well I, I was kind of like it was halfway through the day I was quite tired and I was like at first, I think I was, I was like, well, "That's strange," and uh, and then I just kind of moved on. I was like, "I should have challenged that," but I didn't, and I felt bad afterwards. And, yeah, but, there we go. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there we go. In that case, as justice was almost done. <laughs> as long as, as I was guilt on one part. part yes, yes, exactly. There we go. I I was a, a nice liberal man felt a bit bad about something, yeah. yes. and the world turned. <laughs> And that's how I stopped Brexit. Um, <laughs> so you were asking me about yes. dad duties. So yes. um, I, I'm very lucky to have a very uh, flexible and committed uh, partner who is a fantastic mum and a very funny mum and an incredibly hard-working organisational lady. She used to be the editor of a science magazine. She can get shit done. If you, yeah. if you put it on a spreadsheet, it happens. You know, if you put it yeah, on her yeah. spreadsheet, if she puts it on a spreadsheet, it happens. She's just like... Uh, She's, um, she reminds me a little bit of an obscure Stephen King short story called The Langoliers, or possibly The Langoliers. It's only written down, yeah. isn't it? Uh, it said. But it's, these, um, it's like a group of passengers from an aeroplane get trapped in an airport, and they've sort of fallen outside of the passage of time. And these things called the Langoliers are these creatures that sort of eat up uh, the past. So you move forward in time, and then the past hangs around but is destroyed by them, which is why we can no longer contact the past. And I think of her as something like, administratively, she's like a monster, almost like those guys from the the guys, you know, the aliens, the snaky aliens from the Matrix, that just chew stuff up as they go through. So I'm very lucky in that I get to dad when I'm dadding, and when I've got to go to work, I go to work. I work away from home a lot. Um, and that's a cause of some distress for me, for us both probably. Um, so I don't get to spend as much time with the boy as I would like to. But when I do, I get to do things like I get to take him swimming on a Wednesday lunchtime, yeah. which a lot of the other NCT dads that I know don't get to do it. Also, in terms of the, the comedy that I'm writing at the moment, 
I've got a lot more to complain about these days because my life is harder, because parenting is hard, and that has actually been the wellspring of a lot of material. Well, I was going to say, because um, in your new show, um, compared to what, are you, there was a lot less baby material than I expected to see, because so, I, I usually have to... Well, uh, like Charlie Brooker once said that, oh, I was not, never going to do baby material, but then he did do baby material. Uh, uh, so I, I was uh, not, not shocked to not see it, but I was like, oh, good move, Goldsmith. Yes, uh, and the angle for that show that I try and take, and this is the, the one that I'm touring, so it's, I'm in that weird position now whereby all the new stuff I'm writing is only going to really see daylight in August, yeah. whereas the show that was last year's show that contained the birth of my child... Mm-hmm. Um, is going to live for another 55 odd performances until June even so I mean it's it's weird sort of I'll be you know it's it's a very kind of live in the moment this is what's happening in my life Mm -hmm. thing but it's now chronologically charged Um, but yes I tried for that show to take the angle that I talk about my baby I introduce him late in the show Mm -hmm. I talk about him uh sort of as much as I feel I can get away with and then there's a point at which I then switch to look I know that you don't care about my baby and then that becomes like a fresh mm-hmm. angle on the side so still talking about parenthood but I'm talking about parenthood from the point of view of people who don't have babies who are annoyed that their friends have all got babies yeah. so it's a way of being inclusive I was quite lucky to stumble upon that as a format and um, uh, you also were talking about in um uh, is it extended life? Uh, uh, Extra life. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Um, you have a lovely routine about your friends becoming parents as well, which was, uh, yes, uh, but it's weirdly become a sort of unofficial trilogy. Yeah, that's what I've, uh, that's what I noticed because uh, I was listening to um, well, I listened to the old one the other day and. Uh, uh, 2014 show and uh, and there's definitely there's a certain theme running all the way through it's like a nice narrative you know what I mean but yeah. without being like necessarily like dush 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 yes it's um, I try to avoid being dush dush, dush. I, I don't know what you mean but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, um, a, I'm not hammering them over the head with a thing but when I listened back to Extra Life before I released it online I was sort of in- editing it and I did because I hadn't thought about it for a year or two and I sort of went oh this really is a trilogy this is, this is a person wanting to have a baby the middle show, an hour, which I'm releasing, which when this goes out, I yes. will have, that's the free gift that the podcast listeners oh, are fantastic. getting. So if you're subscribed, yeah. I'm going to put it up there for two days. And if you download it, it's yours. And if you don't, you've got to buy it. <laughs> um, so that show is about breaking up with my partner and then getting back together with her and going, okay, this is the one. And then the new show is about having a baby. And then the show that I'm writing at the moment is... Um, I don't. I, I haven't written it yet, but I, I'm, I'm. I sort of. I'm aware that I'm. Part of me is consciously trying not to have it simply be the next episode. Okay. Because yeah. otherwise, it can become a little bit of a soap opera. But yeah. at the same time, I have kind of learnt what I do, and what I do is autobiographical. Yeah. So I'm interested to see what will happen. Like it would be easy. I'm getting married this year. It would be easy for. The, the next show to be the wedding show yeah. I absolutely am not going to do that yeah. unless it gets to <laughs> June and I'm desperate but my plan is not to do that um, but, but um, yeah. I, I think you, uh, you mentioned with Fern Brady on the um, ComCom pod mm-hmm. recently is that uh, you um you, you wanted to tackle Brexit, but not in terms of like a political point of view, but from an emotional point of view. And I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah, that's a bit of a... I mean, given that that material is working at the moment, yes. whether it still feels relevant enough in August course, and yeah. then in the ensuing tour <laughs> remains to be seen. But I, I imagine it will... <laughs> I mean, best case scenario, it all gets resolved and we don't leave. And uh, <laughs> then I'll change the routine. I'm prepared to make that sacrifice. Yeah. But... Um, 
I, I do feel like I've got a bit more license these days. I've granted myself more of a license to talk about things because I used to feel very strongly, I used to fear very much that I hadn't done enough reading to talk about anything political. And I think that hold, probably holds back a lot of comics, I'm guessing. Um, and actually, I've realised that you don't need to be an expert. I don't need, like, I'm ter- I'd be terrified to go on question time. I am never going to go on question time <laughs> because I can. And what I can do, though, is talk about things and what they mean to me. And I suppose for a long time, I've, I've asked this on my podcast a lot when talking to political comics. You know, how do you know that you can win the argument? And some of them, like Barry Crimmins or, or say, Robin Ince, or I've yeah. um, but people who do political stuff, some of them are very impassioned and want to win an argument, so they've done all the reading. And some of them simply talk about the subject as it pertains to them, as it, as it occurs to them, as they apprehend it. And, um, and I'm allowed to do that. So if I, I noticed that I was just having conversations with people, or I was going, no, you don't understand the point of... Of the European Union is it's a peace project it's to prevent war mm-hmm. and, I found, and I, as I was saying that I thought well I, I, I think that I believe it I haven't done the reading but I, I do think that and I believe it passionately and I'm, if I'm happy to argue about it with a stranger then I might as well talk about it on stage I, I also think um, that one of the ways in which I've found to do that is simply by saying that like, there's a line in the show at the moment which is I, I, look, and I know I haven't done the reading but come on, neither of you and people laugh at that and some of you have done the reading and as long as I can kind of as, as long as I can confess that in the show and talk talk about what it's like to not have done the reading a lot of people feel like that so it can be relevant without being researched which is weird but true I guess yeah but again I kind of went oh, without being comprehensively researched I have done some of the reading yeah. <laughs> uh, but again I think that um that kind of lends it uh, nicely to your qualities as well because uh, it's still autobiographical it's still part of you but it's uh, you responding to a historical event and it's uh, and it captures that endearing nature that you uh, possess nicely but um, uh, on, on the same subject uh, in terms of like creating uh, a show for Edinburgh or for a tour uh, how do you go about building the uh, subject matter as you kind of touched on um, uh, the idea of uh, not having episodes but how do you go about building a brand new show when uh, uh, September comes around? Um, I. What do I do? I keep notes on my phone and I turn those notes and odd little sentences into a thing <laughs> and I try saying it. I tell you what I mostly do. I try to write sentences that aren't funny but that I mean. I try to write. I try not to worry about whether they're funny. I try to write sentences. I think this. I feel like this. Why this? And then I just try and say enough of them in a sort of machine gun at the wall kind of way. And where people laugh, I go, oh, there's something in that. So, and I, and I am getting better these days at spotting when something has got potential. Like, one of the notes on my phone at the moment just says, Glastonbury Brexit. Because I found out that we were leaving the European Union. I found out which way the vote had gone when I was at Glastonbury. Mm-hmm. And I was just reflecting on that. And I was thinking, that's quite funny, isn't it? Because the fear that me and a lot of my friends have is that we will end up leaving Europe because of racist voting and I'm aware that I'm tarring every leave voter as a racist which I know is wrong but we all do it 
and so these people are scared that or I am, we imagine that these people who voted to leave are scared because resources are limited and they can't, we can't just let everyone in and I do understand a sense of that argument but even though I disagree with it and, and what it's leading to, it is funny, I think, that I make that I learnt that information at Glastonbury, which of course has a wall around it and you have to pay to get in because resources are limited. So that to me there's something in that. Very good, yeah. And it, it you know, it isn't a routine yet by a long shot, but it's um I was like, Oh that's interesting. So what I'll do is I'll talk about that on stage and what I tr- what I have to do, what I try to do and I'm forced to these days by parenting duties, is I try to write on stage. And it's actually, you hear a lot of people say, oh, I write on stage. What is that? What does yeah. that mean? For me, it's, it, it's difficult. It's not just improvising around an idea like an, like an improviser might. Yeah. Um, good hats off to them, that's not really my thing. But it's trying to work out what you mean by blurting out what's in your heart and it not being funny and you having the balls to stay in it not the ball the confidence the, the self-belief to stay in it for long enough that you go something about this right yeah I, um, I remember you saying on a podcast recently uh, which is how I start most conversations anyway uh, <laughs> is, um, that you said you were, you're a flincher when, it, uh, when you get to a certain subject and that is like you, you get to it and then you kind of flinch away and I was like that is so me that's me down to a especially because I tried to do um, uh, well, when that when Trump got in and uh, when Brexit happened, I tried to do some political stuff, uh, but uh, uh, and that's not really my, my my thing. But I thought I, I might just just t- talk about it and try to write on stage. Uh, but uh, when they weren't going with it, I was like, no, no. And uh, so I was in the dead man's land of uh, being kind of like I started talking about a thing, but didn't articulate it further enough. But uh, yes. so it just kind of got to the like the, the deadwood stage, and uh, I was like, Ugh, and yes, I think it's very difficult to. You need to avoid kind of platitudes. You need to. You it, you can't say what's obvious. That's the difficult thing about stand-up comedy. It has to be surprising but satisfying. Mm. And you can say a thing that is satisfying and not surprising, and that's not comedy. And you can yeah. say a thing that's true, and that isn't necessarily comedy. It has to something need, you need to dig into it somehow and find something in it which makes people laugh despite themselves, makes people laugh yeah. anyway. You know, and uh, yeah, it's, it's fiendishly fucking difficult, isn't it? So yeah, I, I don't remember saying that about being a flincher, but it's true, so I must have. Um, <laughs> But you probably have a better knowledge of the episodes of ComCom than I do because I only <laughs> listen to them once and I'm busy doing them as I'm listening yeah. to them. So. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I, I certainly think in the early days of being a comedian, I wanted to become full-time, I wanted to become paid and full-time and have opportunities. And just basically because I'd come to it as, as a, a street performer who was already making a living from making people laugh, I wanted to get to that equivalent in stand-up as fast as possible. So probably I took a more mainstreamy route than I might have done I probably took fewer risks than I might have done because I was like I've got to I've, I've got to do this I, it has to be legitimate I have to make money from it I felt like I had to make money from it to be for it to, and that is questionably I don't know whether that's, that's true or not really but I think a lot of the some of the really exciting people in comedy in British comedy certainly either don't have to make money from it or are so passionate about being original that they are prepared not to make money from it. Like, either they've got other jobs, some kind of money in the bank, 
or they live at home or something mm-hmm. which enables them or, or, or all of those things or they're just so fucking passionate about saying stuff that's never been said before you know that they're prepared to fail and I think I probably I have to be careful about being too self-deprecating but I you know as a functional funny comedian I was making people laugh and that was sort of enough for me and I always remember it being a bit of a surprise when I wouldn't get booked for really alternative nights, is invisible dot type gigs. I'd be like, yeah. guys, I'm right here. <laughs> and 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 then you'd look at the sorts of like, you know, Tim Key and Lolly Adafopi and you know, people like that who really have uh, something different to say. Of course I'm not the same type of actors though. Mm-hmm. Well, um talk about being uh, like a a different kind of act. Uh, I, I really wanted to pick up on um, uh, like uh, how you started out in stand-up and also talking about your background in um, a street performance as well. And uh, so, uh, so uh, it has a street performance. Or how do you get into street performance? And uh, you literally walk out into a street <laughs> and start doing. I mean, there's no school for it. You know, you you see a street performer and you think, oh, I I sort of get how that's done I think I'll try it and then you die on your arse a hundred times so what kind of acts did you used to do Was it- I started doing a double act with my best friend Noel where we did I could juggle fire I could breathe fire we learnt the secret of how to walk on broken glass so Carney stunt and we combined all of those things and tried to make some money when we were 16 and we made I talked about this in my very first show which I don't did I ever release it? No, I didn't. But I think the story is in Princess Uncle Stew, which is the first, oh, like yeah. the first album I released, is, was sort of the best of five years mm-hmm. worth of stuff. Um, but it, I talk about it in that show that it's true. We uh, we made something like thirty quid in a hat, and we went. You know, we were only sixteen. Mm-hmm. We were like, we've just this money exists now because we told some jokes and did some juggling and this changes everything this, this yeah, information yeah. is like wow I really wanted to be alternative to my school I really wanted to perform and I really wanted not to be a sort of grey faceless suit wearing person that really only existed in my fervid teenage imagination um, fervid isn't a word febrile teenage imagination um of course, now I realise that there are plenty of people who do office jobs and then go snowboarding and have exciting lives. Yeah. But at the time, I was like, okay, you're either Alexi Sale or you're a faceless grey suit man, you know. So, so I wanted to do that and pursued that, and um, went to circus school for a year in Bristol and uh, had sort of high ideals about. Basically, I was a big fan of the Daredevil comic books, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to yeah. leap around and, you know, jump and learn acrobatics and trapeze and everything. I got here and went, like, you know, literally day one, oh, this is fantastically difficult, and I don't like press-ups, I don't like chin-ups, and this isn't for me. So I specialised in becoming a slightly better juggler than I was, and doing clowning, which I was terrible at. Yeah. So um, I could never... I could never kind of take responsibility enough to be a good clown. And uh, at what point did you decide like, to go into stand-up as well? I used to go to the Edinburgh Festival every summer, um, and I used to go and see comedians. I mean, I've seen so many comedians. I, I remember seeing Noel Fielding and Lee Mack when they were doing the Comedy Zone together, so they were doing, like, 15-minute sets. I, I remember seeing a poster for Rubbernecker, but never seeing Rubbernecker. Yeah. This was a show which was Robin Ince, Ricky Gervais, Stephen Merchant, and Jimmy Carr, yeah. all doing 15 minutes. I mean, I can't believe I didn't see that. Just imagine that show. Just ridiculous. Yeah. So, um, so I used to go up and see stand-up, and I was sort of very inspired by it. I used to love doing it, but I'm, I'm sorry, I used to love seeing it, but I never thought I could do it. And I realise now, 
that that was mostly through fear and mostly through the idea of hecklers. It's like, what would I do if I got heckled? Oh my God, I was just scared of it. So I, I could have started a good 10 years before I did start. But also, I, I wanted to be an actor and the plan became get out of street performing, do it at the weekends, be an actor... You know, being a street performer whilst you try and get acting work. I lasted three years doing that, and I was very lucky, and I did lots of theatre work during that time. And I was bored, senseless by it, and I realised that I was a pretend actor. I, I didn't want to be an actor. I didn't want to actually do the work. I wanted to talk about it. You know? So, um, I th- although I, I often knock it, I often describe myself as fraudulent as an actor. I think I'm handy. I can do a job for you, but I'm not. You know, I'm You're not... a cowboy actor. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a really interesting point because I um I I also uh, when I first I, I did lots of drama at school and I really wanted to be an actor or, or a director, but um uh, I found it like doing theatre and stuff. It took such a long time because you're. Uh, you spend so much time rehearsing and uh, organising with other people and stuff like that, uh, and just it takes so much time to just do a single performance. Uh, yeah. And uh, and the reason why I kind of fell in love with stand up was because it's just so instant. You can just yeah, literally walk into it. Uh, uh, you can even make up on the night if you so wish to. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think that the thing, like acting, is a sort of a frequent. Um, it's like an entry point. It's a gateway drug to stand up because when you're a kid, stand up doesn't seem possible. That's probably changed now. I know you can stand up in uni you know. um, but uh, it, it's not something that's ever offered as a career suggestion not that acting really is but the more kids know about it you sort of know that it's different but yeah you, you would go to a drama school expecting to come out as an actor not necessarily come out as a comedian which I, I think a lot of people do for university as well because it's modules and that's essentially what I did um, but, uh, but yeah um, to kind of double click on the point we made earlier so have you always been interested like in because uh, obviously with comedians comedian podcasts like you you really get to the nuts and bolts of everything really like uh, and you do a fantastic job at just uh, with the comedian really just highlighting um, their strengths and what they do differently uh, but so have you always been interested in looking at comedy in the analytical point of view yeah absolutely to the extent that um, well I don't know, I was going to say, yes, I have, but in a way, it, but in it, I have, but in a way such that I don't realise it's a sort of an obsession about being analytical about comedy because it's just how I think about everything. Mm-hmm. So I remember learning sketches from Not the Nine O'Clock News and Red Dwarf and, and uh, Monty Python and the Lenny Henry show, you know, the Delbert Wilkins show, stuff like that, and then going into school the next day and performing them for my tiny group of friends. You know, I, I remember that, and I, I know that I was doing a good job of... I remember, this is terrible, I remember doing a sketch that I'd seen on telly the previous night better than it had been done on telly. Now, obviously I'm remembering that from the point of view of, you know, the arrogance of youth and being 13 or whatever. But but I think that means I must on some level have kind of had some sort of grasp of timing to even, I'm not saying that it was better, but just the fact that I thought it was made me kind of go, oh yeah, I, I kind of must get this. I'm like, I felt like, I felt like, oh, that, that, 
that bit wasn't as funny as they could have done it because they could have said this yeah. and then put a pause there. You know, what do I know? But yeah, so so I think I have always been very analytical about it. I can remember jokes that I heard years ago far better than I can remember people I've met or experiences I've had, countries I've been to. You know, I've got a terrible memory, but my partner talks about it all the time. I've got a terrible memory, but I've got a great memory for jokes. So if I could find, if I could go back and retake my exams, uh, if I could, I could find a way to make jokes out of things. You know, the way like doctors learn by like I think one of the things they have is like a colouring in book that you know this is the brachial nerve and this yeah. is that and you colour it in and it's like an aid memoir if there was a way in which those things could be put into joke form I'd probably that, that would, that would yeah. be the key to my memory palace that's great yeah. uh, and that's fascinating to hear like, imagine like a, an exam in jokes because that's fantastic <laughs> But, yeah, and uh, at, if the comedy industry is like too full, we could uh, just do a, a comedy test, and the people that fail like a citizenship them. test. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a comedy citizenship. Yeah, but then I think also the um, being a street performer and very from a very early age making money from making people laugh made me feel like oh this is sort of leg- I had a kind of a belief in my own legitimateness yeah. legitimacy which was probably again you know a bit arrogant but equally I did have that money in the hat I was yeah. like well I said that thing and yeah there was a lot of shtick and there was a lot of um, uh, you know generic slash stolen material in a lot of my street shows um, I say, st- like, you know what I mean? Like, generic in the sense that, you know, the way compares have, like, the pot of material. Yeah. It is all stolen because yeah. you, if you didn't come up, if you saw someone do it, you're stealing it. But we let compares get away with it because they've got the night on their shoulders and street performers let themselves get away with it because street performing is bloody difficult. Yeah. So if you need to crib a couple of half remembered jokes together or change the ending to an existing line and convince yourself that you've written it, you yeah. know, fine. Um, because it's a bloody heroic, noble, mm. noble, difficult thing to be doing. But um, what was what was my point going to be? Oh, it uh, sounded like it was the beginning of a good point. But um, I legitimacy. Yes. So so I had some sense of my legitimacy when I started in comedy. I remember thinking, well, not even thinking, just believing, just knowing in my heart. Look, I started off as a bad street performer. I kept doing it. I kept my eyes open. I tried to learn from people who were better than me. And now yeah. I'm a good street performer, so I'm going to be a rubbish comedian for a few years, and I'm going to get better, and I'm going to be pro. There was no doubt in my mind at all that I would one day become a professional comedian, yeah. and I think that probably helped in some way. Yeah, um, that's a that's a really nice ethos to have at that level as well. You just work. Yeah, yeah. You just turn up. Yeah. Just keep turning up. Now. If after five years of turning up, you're bombing every night and you're terrible and you hate yourself, stop turning up. But certainly, you know, it, it, you try a thing. And, and to be honest, I don't think I've ever said this before. Juggling teaches you that. I'm probably playing an instrument, learning an instrument does as well. I've never done that. But when you juggle, you can't juggle and you learn to juggle and you count the number of throws you can do and at the end of the week you can do 17 throws and that's your new record and the next week you do 35 throws and you can basically do it. And you go from, it's a very good teaching tool because um, learning to juggle makes you realise that this seemingly impossible, seemingly difficult looking thing is actually just a matter of practice mm. and then within that there's other things like my old juggling teacher Haggis used to say practice doesn't make perfect perfect practice makes perfect um, and that's a really good point you can learn something badly you can be a comedian who learns how to take the roof off using pretty hacky stuff yeah. because that's what you've practiced in and you need to keep your eyes open and try and be aware of 
what you're learning and what you're practicing. Again, um, uh, I, in my mind, I have an encyclopedic knowledge of podcasts I've listened to, and um, I remember on ComCom Pod, um, this is essentially just me uh, just referencing ComCom Pod episodes. But, uh, I'm fine with that. Uh, <laughs> but in the Patton Oswald episode, um, something that really stuck with me was that um, you don't have to work hard, but you have to work smartly, if you know what I mean. Yes. So, and, uh, and what I'm quite bad for as well is that I, I, I put the effort in and I, I work really hard but, but I, I don't I feel like I might not be making the best use of that time so I'm putting a lot of hours in but maybe I can use that more efficiently you know what I mean? but, definitely I think we all could and I think one of the problems with stand-up is that it's you know there's loads of great things about the amount of stage time you can have but in the early days you can't pick and choose your stage time you have to sit around and wait the audiences are small and mostly comprised of comics or you've just driven 400 miles 300 miles to <laughs> yeah. get to a gig and you know, and you've got to get there, clear your mind, and kind of cleanse yourself of the journey and the circumstances, and go out and get something for yourself. You know, you need to not just do a good gig, but you need to learn from it to do a good gig next time and to work on the material and stuff. And so, I think stand up for me has become an opportunity to travel, hopefully indefinitely. So, you know, they say it's better to travel hopefully than to arrive. I've realised what I like doing is travelling hopefully. So I think that's what I've been doing the whole time, is it's more important to me to have a thing that I am continuing to learn than it is to... Like, I can't see myself getting frustrated that I'm not rich or frustrated that I'm not famous or frustrated that I'm not on telly because the thing is the thing itself. And I'm sure I've heard whether it was Louis C.K. or Patton Oswalt or... Me, one of the other, one of the other greats. Um, but I either thought this independently or have heard it said that, you know, what is the best moment in a comedian's life? It's when you try a new bit out the first time and it works. And that experience is the same whether you're doing it in front of 10,000 people or 10. That thrill, that, that sensual experience of going, oh, my new bit works, I am good. That you know, we get that, yeah. and Louis C.K. gets that, and the rest of it. Yeah. He's a millionaire. We're not. Yeah. We still get the same thing. And and I think I've been through some tough times regarding comedy and whether it's worth the investment of time and the investment and the the annihilation of your social life and all those things. And I do jealously look at some of the other NCT dads and think, oh, bedtime every night. You get to eat with your family every night. But I also know that what makes me happy is travelling hopefully having those those moments yeah. of you know newness it worked my new bit worked and that I can't see myself getting yeah. frustrated with that yeah that's a, that's a very beautiful and poetic answer <laughs> uh, thank you well, I think the important thing is, uh, is that when you do try out that new bit and it does work and it connects to what you said earlier it's that legitimacy it's that it's the money in the bucket in the house like, oh we can actually do this it's, uh, it's, it's working you know it's, it kind of gives legitimacy it's like I am funny it works uh, and uh, and it kind of confirms that you should be there. You know, and, uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, to be honest, like for all of I had this sort of belief in my my ability to get there. You know, there were hard gigs. There were dog shit gigs. There were. <laughs> I've recorded somewhere. I always think about tacking it on as like the uh, extra content somewhere. But I've got I've got a recording of me having just died on my art. Have I already put this out? Um, was this the preview you did? Yeah. I did a preview three years ago or two years ago and I've got a recording of myself having bomb- oh no not that one that yeah, was yeah, yeah, yeah I remember yeah. okay so yeah. that was the new worst gig of my life <laughs> god but no prior to that maybe two years prior to that I had a really horrible preview in retrospect it wasn't yeah, yeah. as bad as that yeah. more recent <laughs> one um, but um, 
Yeah, it's but now I've got both. I recorded both, didn't I? So the, the first thing, I didn't record the show, but I, re- I sat in my bedroom on the verge of tears and recorded, okay, the, I was doing the podcast by that time. Yeah. This is how I feel. This is what I'm going through. Uh, it was at the crack in North London in, in Angel. Yeah, yeah. And called it three years ago. And I'm sat in my bed afterwards going, I just bombed so hard. I don't believe I can ever do comedy. I, you know, and I always thought I should release that in some format. But maybe I'll save that. I'll save that for when I'm... Yeah. more successful than I am now because like I would love to hear a recording of, uh, of Louis C.K. talking about a death after a death yeah. and less fussed about hearing yeah. uh, I mean pick anyone at my sort of level you know yeah. <laughs> what would be really interesting is to um, kind of watch like both the finished version of the um, of the show plus a dying version of the show like um, so yeah. watching them like, kind of side by side and seeing that would uh, be interesting for a few people in the world <laughs> and mean, horrible yeah. for everyone concerned <laughs> yeah I know what you mean it's, yeah. I've thought I've considered yeah. doing that I, you know I've got a this this shonky preview that I did the more recent one so this was me doing a preview at a gig in Camden something yeah. about North London and uh, <laughs> And there were, there were not enough people there. We had just decided not to do the gig because a group of, like, nine or ten hadn't showed up. Yeah. So there were only nine people in the room. And then I decided, no, let's just press on, let's do it anyway. So I did the first couple of minutes to nine people thinking, this is what it is, okay, fine. Then the group of a further nine people did show up late. A lot of them English wasn't their first language. They barreled in when I'd already said, hey, guys, this isn't really enough people to do a gig. So now it looked like well this must be so it's going to be great right it all just went so badly wrong and because I knew I was taping it when it became apparent when my first three or four jokes died on their ass, I started narrating my death I said well listen I'm going to get something out of this this is how I'm feeling right now this is awful now yeah okay I got some weird voyeuristic documentary audio track from it but also I made the people in the room feel terrible and yeah. I really kind of exploited them and I just I, it, I felt like I was the pilot of a plane and I was just pushing the nose down and driving it into the ground and um, so it would be interesting when I that was a preview for the current tour show which went on to be very successful <laughs> um, but um, when I eventually release it it would be perhaps interesting to to accompany that recording with a recording of those same jokes dying but at the same time you just hear the jokes die you don't want to hear yeah, them it, it'd make you go, I think it would make the listener reassess the good version of the show they <laughs> <laughs> yeah. would uh, thoroughly analyse the whole show uh, what you should do instead is get the same people in the, that exact same room in the same place and do the gig again and go alright guys I know it wasn't like it, it, it was weird the first time. Absolutely not. I'm never seeing anything. <laughs> <laughs> I get where you're going with it. <laughs> uh, or, or maybe, maybe, maybe you play that, play the recording of the people in that room to the same people in, in that room for a very meta effect of that. So, uh, and you, and you narrate on the narration of your death. Oh and, my uh, god! It's like Inception, but yep. in boring. Fe- Literally everyone. So. Boring Inception. That could be the name of the tour. Boring, <laughs> that's uh, the next show. Boring Inception. <laughs> uh, that's great. Has that uh, has Concompod influenced your comedy style or uh, performance in any particular way? Or yes, I think <clears throat> I think the main ways in which it's influenced me are 
I feel more confident because the podcast allows me to access an audience and it allows people to get in touch with me and tell me they enjoy my stuff. And it enables me to get 30 people together for a preview at fairly short notice, which makes me go, I've got the beginnings of a fan base. And when you walk on to people who know you, that's different and fun and, and nice. So that gives me a certain amount of confidence. Um, I suppose on some... I suppose the other, the, the biggest way in which it's changed, again, is psychological. It's less about learning techniques for specific things and more to do with the fact that I've realised that most, not every, but most comedian is secretly bricking it and thinks they're not a real one. Mm-hmm. And actually knowing that everyone else felt like that made me feel a lot less like an imposter and a, more, a lot more like a, an example of the form. So those, I would say, are the, the main ways. I guess there are... <coughs> I guess that there are um, technical things I've learned, but I sort of, I, again, it's difficult to talk about because I've also, since doing the podcast, I've also been working hard at being a comedian for five years, so I would hope that I would have got better in that time anyway, um, were it not for the pod. But, uh, yeah, there, there's definitely... The odd thing will pop up, like you've listened uh, because you kindly logged for me the Ellis James episode, or you're about to. I'm you've about not done to, it yet. Yeah. Yeah. So in that, he, I, I talked to him about his word choice. There's um, an example of a gig he does where, in the material, he says, that happens to me seldom. And I said to him, I think you're the only comedian I've ever heard use the word seldom on stage. You know, it's, an, it's a funny little word. And he said, well, what I do is I write my stuff out longhand every so often, and I go through it and get a thesaurus on all the words. And I'm like, no, what a secret, what a genius little thing. You know, and that sounds boring and time-consuming, and it would, like a lot of boring, time-consuming work, it will make you better, (laughs) you know. So the idea of regarding one's word choice as not an accident of how it tumbles out of your mouth, but as a, a, you're writing, you're a writer, you're a creator, so create, you know, think about your word choice. So that is a really interesting um, thing that I, I probably do on some unconscious level. I, I have a, a joke that I did in, uh, in Newcastle at the stand the other week that really tickled this particular member of the audience. I talk about um, inhaling nitrous oxide balloons, that, the phenomenon of that kind of safe drug thing. And I said, you know, what happens is you get off your tits for 15 seconds and then it leaves your system and you clamber back onto your tits. And that's just sort of a passing thing rather than a punchline. And a guy came up to me afterwards and just said, absolutely creasing at that, clamber. You clamber back <laughs> onto your tits. And, and he said, you, you must have been through all of the words like scrambled, no, clamber. And I went, yeah, yeah. And I kind of uh, tried to sound as if I had yeah. got all those choices. Actually, it was just an instinctive word yeah. choice. So just the idea of clambering, <laughs> that's just the first thing I thought of. But um, yeah, so, so I'm sure little technical things like that yeah. pop in as well. That's great. Um, and uh, uh, I also, uh, just as a, like a more light heart question, getting towards the end of this, but um, sure. what's been your favourite gig of 2016? Good question. Good question. I wish I'd thought about this in advance. My oh, memory conscious. is so bad that I really have to sit and think to try and contact things <laughs> like that. Um, my favourite gig, well, I mean... Sorry. Uh, uh, go ahead, sorry. I've got two. 28th of January. Uh, birth of my son I did a gig that night having been awake for 40 hours Um, I stopped in at Loco Comedy in Bristol underground comedy at Loco in Bristol um, which is run by Pete Dobbin friend of mine and Daryl J. Carrington also a friend of mine friend of the show Um, and uh, I stopped in to see 
the guys and I, I knew a couple of other mutual friends were there in the audience so on my way home off my head on adrenaline and, and no sleep and oh my god I'm a dad I dropped in and uh, Pete said to me because Pete's like this he said do you want to do five in the middle and I was like oh god I can't he said do you want to do three I was like yeah I, sh- I should do a gig on the, the night of my son's birth so I went on did three four five minutes came off and then Pete was on the phone to another act who was headlining who said, look, I'm trapped, I can't get there in time. So Pete said, do you want to go back on and close the show? So I did half an hour of rambly, improvised, soupy stuff about the fact that I'd just that day become a dad, and it was very, very special. It was a very special thing. That's genuinely, that's, a, that's both endearing, lovely, and also just uh, spectacular. Just go, Thank you. <laughs> just, uh, hold on, I've got a baby at home, but that's okay. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the baby wasn't at home at this point. Oh, yeah, I should say the baby yeah, was in hospital. Yeah, yeah. I was going home to sleep. Um, but so that that is a that's the obvious first one, and the second one is also baby related, which is on the final Edinburgh show, the final show of the run at Edinburgh this year, which was then sort of some of that material from January had kind of made it into the show, um, and it's the show which introduces to my audience the birth of my son. Uh, he was present at the show. My missus had smuggled him in. And so at the very end, I said, look, he's in the room. Do you want to meet him? And everyone went, yeah. And I was like, good, because you're <laughs> going to meet him anyway. <laughs> and I brought him on stage. And there's a couple of photos, a bit of video somewhere, with shaky cam of me holding the boy and talking. And obviously I'm tearing up and it's really magic. And he tries to grab. I thought, oh, there's a big laugh coming up at the very end of the show. There's a big reveal joke that normally gets a very big laugh. It's going to scare him. But I did it, and it didn't scare him. He didn't seem phased at all, and he made a grab for the mic. I was like, that's my guy. So, so those are, you know, are very sentimental, yeah, soupy sort of things. No, I've right. also had lots of other very fun gigs which, uh, which yeah. didn't include those. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, you're going on tour soon as well? Uh, I am, yes. Um, in, I mean, I should, I, it's getting to the stage, the, sort of the PR phase, where I should learn what the opening date is, but it's something like mid-Feb. Um, so I'm going to do something like 15 or 16 dates in the UK and Ireland <coughs> and then I'm going to <coughs> excuse me <coughs> I've got a herniated esophagus and it's a uh, true thing I've seen it I've seen it at a camera down my throat oh God. and as a result I find it difficult to swallow food and when I clear my throat it, this is <laughs> you can put this out if you want that, this is um, uh, for the Matt Hoss but it's uh, <laughs> Yeah, it basically means that I've got to do this big performance of clearing my throat and it looks like I'm trying to get people's attention. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> but it's literally because I've got a hernia in my esophagus. Um, so after those dates, I then go to Melbourne for the Melbourne Comedy Festival where I do the, the same show for 26 dates. Then I come back and do another 15 or 20 dates. So it's like a big tour coming up and all the information is available at comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour as you as a podcast fan are no doubt tired of hearing me say <laughs> it's, it's actually really weird to like have you say it in live I know, you know my just, face is in front of you I know, it's, it's weird, it's weird. Yeah, yeah, I, know. I, I honestly I get that a lot I, uh, I turn up in dressing rooms and at gigs and people go oh I was I was just listening to you. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you were just listening to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I'm very flattered and happy. <laughs> it's um, it's it's uh, it's really quite nice because uh, obviously it comes out most weeks as well. Uh, so uh, most uh, weeks, you wound me. <laughs> it is weekly, and sometimes I screw up and it doesn't come out. Yeah. <laughs> most, most weeks, weeks. as you're being very delicate about that, and uh, yeah, it's a knife in my heart. <laughs> oh, what a lovely uh, way to round it. No, but um, it's it's really nice because we. 
particularly uh, with the Russell Howard going on, uh, choosing what material you're going to do before going on the TV show, which was really nice. It's like he included us all in it and in the waffle, or not the waffle, but uh, oh yeah, sure, in the, in, in the post uh, podcast, whatever uh, it's called, the novel. I don't know, in the novel. <laughs> yes, uh, um, but in, in that section, where he just just chatting and rambling, and it's uh, it's so endearing because you're. Uh, you're just kind of talking to us about your week and what's happening and yeah. uh, crying at children's novels and stuff like that. <laughs> but it's, it's, uh, it's really nice just to... Because uh, we see you working as an uh, interviewer, but then we see you just uh, really opening yourself up as a person, so it's always delightful to see. But uh, one of my final questions before we uh, round up. Are you happy? <laughs> no, joking. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but um, going off that same theme... Uh, I'm just going to say, yes, ecstatically <laughs> so, more so than I've ever been in my life. And, but has stand-up comedy made you a happier person? That's a good question. Um, yes, absolutely. Oh, my God. I mean, a lot of other great things have happened in my life. It's very difficult to pass them all and sort of set, pass with an R in the middle. Um, and it's difficult to kind of unpick it all and go, what is it? What is responsible? I mean, my therapist was very successful at making me happy. My wife, my pre-wife, is very successful. My baby is makes me incredibly happy. My career does certainly make me happy. The podcast makes me happy. People's responses to it make me happy. And I couldn't do the podcast if it wasn't a stand-up. There's the day-to-day coming up with ideas and having a mouthpiece for them, having a, a place, having a platform for them. There's, yeah, not a mouthpiece, a mouth, <laughs> yeah. an actual mouth. Um, and there's the, the sensual experience of doing gigs and making people laugh. It's, it's quite hard to think of things about comedy that make me unhappy. I certainly sometimes get jealous of other comics despite myself. Um, I'm better at spotting it now and realising how absurd it is. I have a personal little, uh, a little uh, anti-jealousy hack, which is to imagine no other comedians exist and pretend you're the only person in the world who discovered it. Because to all intents and purposes, to an audience, you are. You know, this is... Like, it doesn't matter if Comedian X just had an incredible sellout run and is boasting about it on Facebook. It, it doesn't matter because in, if you just imagine that we all live in a sort of big global village with, you know, wigwams and trees everywhere, if I'm the one person that discovered stand-up comedy, my, like, it's like being the blacksmith. You're the... Like, if you're a blacksmith in this ludicrous village analogy, <laughs> yeah. if you're a blacksmith... You're a blacksmith. That's your craft. It's your art. It's your job. It's your thing you do, and you serve the community, and you make money from it, and you pay your bills. Um, you know, wigwam insurance and so forth. But um, you don't spend any time worrying about the blacksmith in the next village. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. So I think if you briefly just pretend to yourself you're the only comic in the world and feel how nice that feels, probably. How did, why does it work? Why does it make you happy? I don't know if I'm explaining it well, but. If you're the only comedian in the universe, then you do your job, you make people laugh, you pay your bills. And those things are true. So you may as well be the only comedian in the universe, so there's no point feeling jealous. And I'm much better at dealing with that now than I was. Maybe five years in, I had a real problem with it. Five years in is, when the, time, is the time when, in most comics' life, lives, that's the time when people you started out with are getting very successful. You'll all, every one of us will know one or two people who are, who at that point are stratospherically successful. And it's easy to think, oh, I've, I've, I've missed it, I've messed up. And that's when you really have to be tough on those voices and go, no. I'm, and remember the time when you started where you were thinking, pinch me, I'm dreaming, I can't believe I'm doing this. 
because those moments become fewer and further in between mm-hmm. and I, you still have to remember that sensual feeling that, that, that feeling in your body that kind of lightness in your body and that giddiness in your head when you first thought to yourself holy shit I'm a comedian mm-hmm. you have to remember that because you forget it and that is the antidote to craven feelings of jealousy about how well you make the do. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. Um, and uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's, uh, it's, a, it's an absolute delight to have you as the first ever guest. Thanks, man. No, I'm very honoured, very thank, proud. Thank you so much. Cheers, dude. Bam, 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 bam. <laughs> Fantastic, Mr. Stuart Goldsmith, everyone. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was, uh, it was such a great start to the podcast, and and hopefully it will get better and better, but we've had a fantastic start with Mr. Stuart Goldsmith. Thank you so much uh, for coming on. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I hope you guys really enjoyed that. I had a lot of fun recording it, and uh, hopefully you guys had a couple of drinks uh, alongside of it as well. You know, If you do do that, let me know. That would be very good fun. Uh, but yeah, uh, but if you if you want to hear more about Stuart Goldsmith, you can follow him on Twitter at it's under the uh, it's the Twitter handles at ComComPod, and you can go on the website Comedians Comedian Podcast, and also you can look at his other website StuartGoldsmith.co.uk. But yeah, uh, you can check out all of his dates there, and you might want to go and see him on tour as well because he's going all around the country. Uh, and he's doing his show compared to what, and it is a fantastic show. Uh, so go and check out those dates on his website. Uh, it starts in mid-February, so check those out. Um, but yeah, I want to say thank you so much for listening to this first podcast. I really appreciate it. What if you do like it? Please, uh, I, you can subscribe. You can like us on Facebook uh, and Twitter. If you want to follow us, uh, it's at Drunk Comport. Is uh, that's our Twitter handle and our Facebook uh, page name. Uh, if you just leave us a review on iTunes, that'd be fantastic. Five stars, I thank you very much. Uh, uh, if you just leave us a review, uh, or even if you just let me know what you think of it, that'd be really appreciative. And if you could share to your friends as well, uh, it, that'd be awesome as well. But at the very meantime, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad you listened to the very end, and I want to say thank you very much to you. If you want to hear more from me... Um, you can follow me at Matt Hoss Comedy, and I'm doing loads of live shows myself soon. Um, I'm doing the Glasgow Comedy Festival on the 23rd and 24th of March. I'm doing uh, my old show on the 24th, Vegetarian Man, uh, a show where I uh, come out as a vegetarian to my northern beef farming family. Uh, and I did that show at IAF this year, uh, and Hating Fringe Festival in Swindon. And it went down pretty well. Uh, uh, apart from one time. One time it went horribly. But uh, yeah, it was a really lovely show. Um, and I'm also on the 23rd. I'm doing uh, a work in progress version of my uh, my new show called 100 Acts of Morality and Kindness. Uh, and where I go out and try and be the most moral person and uh, the kindest person I can be. And try and change the world. Uh, so yeah, if you're interested in seeing either of those shows, they're on the Glasgow Comedy Festival website. Uh, it'd be really awesome. Uh, if you can come along and see me sometime, it'd be great. And one final thing before I go, if you are a comedian that enjoys this podcast and you would like to be on the show and have a drink with me sometime, 
uh, that would be great. It'd be good to hear from you. Um, uh, obviously, I've got lots of really cool guests lined up in the future. Uh, I'll keep it silent for the time being, but I- I'm sure you'll really enjoy all of them. Uh, but if you are interested in being a future uh, guest on the show, please contact me at one of the Twitter handles, or if you're friends with me on Facebook, please add me on there. Uh, so finally, just thank you so much for listening to the Drunken Comedian podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure, and this has been a great first episode. Thanks to you. Have a good day. Bye.